Hebrews chapter 12, let's begin at verse 28. Read down to verse 39. It is a long passage and it can feel a little bit convoluted. So you just follow along and we'll go back and look at it. We'll look at what we miss, what we receive, and then what's required. Let's start in verse 18. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 18. <clears throat> For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a, if even a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking to you, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> and so, Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask you to help us. Pray that you'd help me to speak clearly and say only what the Bible says in relation to who you are and how you have revealed yourself. We pray that Christ will be honored here today. We pray for brothers and sisters in Christ that their souls will be strengthened and made happy in the Lord. We pray for sinners that are in rebellion that stand against you, that you in grace, that your kindness would lead them to repentance. We pray that as we walk out, we might walk out rejoicing of how good it is to live in the grace that you give us in Christ. And so help us today, in Jesus' name we ask, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> What are you right now holding on to? <laughs> Be careful when you're a preacher asking a rhetorical question <laughs> in a uh, literate church. Good job, son. Well done. Well done. What are you, I should have been more specific, what are you holding on to right now that is giving you hope and strength and a reason to get up in the morning. Okay. 
Let me ask another question then. <laughs> at the core of who you are, at the core of who you are, what has centered you to such a degree that if the worst happens to you, no matter how tragic or painful that worst might be, you are able to actually keep moving. What do you right now have to smile about? Because jobs change. Kids leave. Retirement account, accounts tank. People that you thought you could trust actually hurt you. What is so rock solid in your life right now that you know that no matter what happens to you, you actually are going to be okay? There are too many people sitting in this room right now that have built their lives on sinking sand. And the text in front of us, the Bible, the text in front of us addresses that very thing. Let's get context. Hebrews is a sermon that is written by a preacher to his people. We are almost to the end of it in chapter 12. We've got one more chapter. This book is written to a group of people, a very specific group. In fact, the title of it, Hebrews, lets you know they are of Jewish descent and were part of, of being Jewish in first century Palestine. It is written to these people that have turned from that and seen Jesus as the Messiah and trusted in Christ as Lord, although they have Jewish backgrounds. And this sermon is written in such a way to give them something to hold on to. And as he brings his sermon to a close, and we're almost there, as he brings his sermon to a close, he's encouraging his people to think about how, how good the gospel is. To have a clear picture of the gospel. Now, we need to be careful when you're a Baptist preacher or really any kind of preacher. You don't assume the gospel. You always are explicit with the gospel. So when I say gospel, what I mean is that God is a creator, created all of us in His likeness. Every person here, it's why you have dignity. The image of God in us is marred. It's disfigured. It's, it's messed up because... We are sinners. That sin has not just put us a long way from God. The sin actually separates us, right? It's a wall. It's not only that, it's also a crime against God. And that crime must be punished. So we're, we're under condemnation. But God is not just a judge. He is also loving, kind, good. And in His affection for us, gives us Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. He is all God, all man. The life of Jesus is important because He lived in such a way that you and I can't. We don't keep the Ten Commandments. Jesus did. He kept all the law of God so that He earned righteousness. His active obedience earned righteousness. And at the cross, what does He do there? The cross is important because Jesus died on the cross as a substitute in the place of sinners. Remember, sin is a crime and must be punished. God punishes our crime on Jesus as a substitute. God raised him from the dead after he died, raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven as a sign that victory has been won and forgiveness is now available to anyone who will repent and believe. Now the 
preacher has preached that to his people. And in this passage, what he's doing is he's reminding his people of the radical grace of God found in Jesus. And the fact that you can build your life on the unshakable truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That, that you can be right now happy and satisfied in the fact that you are a daughter of God or a son of God. That you belong to God because of what Jesus has done for you. And what I hope today is we're going to take a comparison. I'm just going to do what the, what the preacher does. He sets up <clears throat> Mount Sinai on one side where God gave the Ten Commandments. He's going to talk about that in verses 18 to 21. And then verse 22 to 24, he sets up what he calls Mount Zion, where Christ died for our sins. And he says, you are not under law, but under grace. And what I'm hoping is that the comparison that you see today will convince you of the joy that there is in being a child of God. I would say it like this. I want you to consider Consider how radical God's grace is. That's, that's what I want you to, there's not much application there. I want you to just think with me. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in a little while, so it's appropriate. We think, consider how radical God's grace is. Let's go into a Bible study now. If you have your Bible, follow along with me. You'll find it there in verse 18. Here's the first point I want you to consider. Consider what you avoid. Consider what happens when you are in Christ, what it is you actually avoid. What happens when you are a Christian? Here at the start of verse 18 is a negative in verse 18. He takes us all the way back to Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments and the preacher is going to compare and contrast that which we have in Christ over against that which is there on Mount Sinai. See in verse 18, you have not come to what can be touched. Our faith is not built on something that you had to put your hands on. Ten Commandments were in stone tablets, thrown down, and saw them. Even a perverted view of Judaism, what Aaron was doing down at the, bottom of the, at the bottom of the mountain when they said, Look, where is Moses? Who is this? Make a God for us. And he makes an idol, something they can touch. And the preacher says, That's not what we believe. Not only that, see it in verse 18, the fire and the darkness, and the gloom, and the storm. You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, gloom, and a tempest. Ours is not a, ours is not a religion of fear, and dread, and judgment. And terrifying. The people that come out of the oppression of, of what Judaism had become, living, living under the law, knowing you never can match it, and he says in verse 18, you've, that's not what you've come to. Or you come down to verse 19. You can find all this, by the way, in Exodus 19 and 20 and Deuteronomy 4 and 5. But there, verse 19, <clears throat> And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, so that, if you go back to Exodus 19, the people hear the voice of God. A trumpet continues to get louder and louder as the presence of God becomes closer. And the people don't want to be with God. They're begging for it to stop. 
rattled and mortified. And the, the preacher to his people is saying, that's not, that's not what it's like to be a Christian. Verse 20, come on down a little bit. In verse 20, he takes us back to the mandate God gave. Uh, God had told Moses, you tell the people that a man should not touch this mountain. If he touches the mountain, he's going to be stoned to death, even if a beast touches it. Verse 20, the preacher says, They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. It's a reminder that God is so holy, so infinitely holy, that the wages of sin is death, and to touch His holiness instantly. There, there is this 18, 19, and 20, this terrifying vision of God, and the preacher is saying that's not. See, 18, you have not come to that. Then he turns his attention to Moses. My goodness, Moses. Verse 21, you know, Moses, I mean, Mo Moses is, I mean, you have Abraham and the patriarchs, but Moses, the giver of the law, the most humble man, the most holy person. And verse 21 says that even Moses couldn't stand it. You see it, verse 21? Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So why is the preacher saying, why is he making us look over there? He's saying to us categorically, this is not what Christianity is. Standing under the condemnation of the law, knowing that you can't keep it. Living with the reality, knowing that you'll never be good enough. To, to stand under the weight of thinking that you can never actually please God. And so what the gospel does, the gospel changes all of that. The law is, look, the law is good. The law is right. The law is a reflection of God's glory, His holiness. The law shows us who God is. The law shows us His expectations. But the primary use of the law is to show us that we can't keep it and we need the gospel. And Jesus has kept the law as our substitute. You would call it like this, His active do you understand the phrase active obedience? The active obedience of Jesus. All that is is simply Jesus lived in our place. And He obeyed actively to earn righteousness as a human. He did that as a human in our place. He kept the law as our substitute. His active obedience in our place. And, and He went even further. Jesus didn't just keep the law for us. Jesus then takes the just penalty. Remember, sin is a crime against God. Crime must be punished. The way sin is punished, the Bible says, is through death. Jesus, as the substitute, takes the wrath of God on our behalf. And the resurrection of Jesus, why we worship on a Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus is the assurance and the true sign of God's forgiveness in your life. It is the center of our hope. Look, it is healthy. It is healthy now and then to consider how radical God's grace is. So just consider, verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. Consider what you avoid. Now in verse 22... Let's turn the corner. In verse 22, he turns to the positive. Here's the second point. Number two. Consider what you receive. 
consider what you receive. Verses 22, 23, and 24. Now, when you read that and you go down, it's a list again. And there are eight or nine of these privileges, depending on how you list them. Let's just sort of go through them. See the contrast in verse 22? But you, okay, you did not get the condemnation of Mount Sinai, but you, what did you get? Let's go to verse 22. Here's the contrast. But you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a, a phrase that typically points toward Jerusalem. You find it all through the Old Testament. And when you go and look up Mount Zion, you could search it if you have a study Bible. <clears throat> Mount Zion, we're told in Psalm, Psalm 9, verse 11, that Mount Zion is the first place of God's habitation. It is where God dwells forever. Mount Zion in Psalm 2, verse 6, is the seat of the throne of God. It is the reign of the kingdom of Christ. You've come to that. Or Mount Zion in Psalm 121. Mount Zion is the, the place where God has promised His innumerable blessings. Mount, you've come to that. Or in Micah 4, 2, Mount Zion is where the gospel emanates from. It comes from Mount Zion. You've come to that. Or Psalm 87 says that, that Mount Zion is the object of God's special love. You've come to that. Or Psalm 48 tells us that, that Mount Zion is the joy of the whole earth. You've come to that. Or um, Psalm 14.7 tells us that, that Mount Zion is the starting point of God's salvation. This is not, this is not Mount Sinai. This is Mount Zion. It is the throne of grace. It's where we go to be accepted by God. Not only that, keep pressing on it, verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What does Psalm 46, 4 say? That there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Here's the living God. It's an understanding of our nearness to God. One of the beautiful phrases in Ephesians chapter 2, a promise, of, uh, a, promise, a promise of bringing different people together as one. Ephesians chapter 2, there is where we find why a so diverse group of people can come together. We don't depend on critical race theory. We depend on the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2 that makes one new man out of the two. And the, the text says that we are no longer strangers and aliens. We are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. One new man. That's what you've come to. You've come to, in verse 22, look at the, look at the, the joyful celebration. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable, innumerable angels and festal gathering. It's the picture you see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, sometimes in Daniel, over in Ezekiel. And there you have now and then this picture of heaven and what's going on in heaven. And it's the picture of this joyful, heavenly gathering of worship around the throne. There with the living God. And the preacher says, that's what you've come to. Verse 23, what have you come to? You've come to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. The firstborn, the one that is loved the most. The firstborn, the one that is bought by Christ. The one that is enrolled in heaven. It's one thing to be a part of a local church. So you join Hickory Grove and you're a member at Hickory Grove Baptist Church. 
Look, to join Hickory Grove means you've professed that Jesus Christ as Lord and been baptized into the fellowship. You're baptized not just into a local body of believers. When you give your life to Christ, you become part of a movement. Brothers and sisters that have been redeemed by Christ throughout all of eternity. And the preacher says, you've come to that. You've come to the judge of all. You see at verse 23? <clears throat> you've come to God, the judge of all. This is a strange place to put the judge. I would have thought over in Mount Sinai would have been a good place to talk about that. But instead, we are reminded in the midst of all of this good and, and, and gracious talk, we are reminded that God is still a holy judge that condemns sin and sends sinners to hell. We're reminded of that because in contrast, in relief, it shows us how good the grace of God is. We are reminded that Christ has, has interceded on our behalf, that even though we were guilty, we were condemned. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That Christ has made us righteous. That through His perfect life, what He's done on the cross, He's purchased us and we are made so that we are acceptable to God. That, that although He is still so holy, just as holy as He was Mount Sinai, we have been made acceptable to God because of Christ. You've come to that. That's what you've come to. He presses it even further in verse 23. You've come and seen the righteous made perfect. Do you see that phrase? The righteous made perfect. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What in the world is that? The righteous made perfect is nothing more than the saints that have gone on before us that are now in heaven. It's what you would see in chapter 11. It's the roll call of faith. It's a reminder of those whose struggle is finally over and are with the Lord. It's good to remember the sequence of events in your own life. I'll give you four words. It goes like this. Condemnation. That's where we start. Everybody starts under condemnation. It's where you are like the rest of mankind. That we are born in sin. Condemnation. When you put your faith in Christ, you hear, hear the gospel, you put your faith in what God has done for you in Christ, you are justified. So condemnation, justification. Justification means that you are made right and acceptable to God. Justification is the start, the starting point. It's where we all begin when we are converted. Condemnation, justification, and then this is where we all are now, sanctification. Sanctification is nothing more than us growing in Christ, seeing the good things and the bad things, our prayers, God's word, worship, all of life is, is bringing us closer to God and more like Christ. So, condemnation, justification, sanctification. The last word is this word, glorification. There comes a day when you will breathe your last here on earth. Your spirit departs. You no longer then battle with sin. You are one of the righteous that have been made perfect. That's what you've come to. What else have you come to? You find it there in verse 24. And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. What a beautiful reminder. There is Jesus, the man, 
Isn't it interesting? He didn't say Christ. He didn't say Jesus Christ. He said Jesus. Jesus as a person. The Bible says that when it came time to name the baby that was born to Mary and Joseph, the angel said, you shall name him Jesus. He will save his people from their sin. That Jesus, you have come to Jesus, but here's his office. What does he do? What is his function? He is the mediator. You know what a mediator is? The one that's, that comes between two different individuals. You go to Mount Sinai, you couldn't touch the mountain because the holiness of God is there. The people begging, please have it go away. Turn the voice from us. That's not what we do. Why? Because we have a go-between. Jesus. He is our mediator. He is our high priest. He makes it so that our prayers go into the throne room of God. He is the mediator of a new covenant. That's what you've come to. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Don't stop looking at it now. Verse 24. Look what you've come to. You've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks better that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now the people that heard this for the first time as good Jewish people would know that story in Genesis chapter 4. A lot of you know it. Genesis chapter 4 tells the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. It is a murder, it's a fratricide, it's terrible in the eyes of God. He tries to hide it and tries to act as if it's not a big deal. God comes to Cain again and he says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord says to Cain, what have you done? The blood of your brother Abel cries from the ground for vengeance. That's what the Hebrew says. And, and the preacher says, that is not. Now you've come to the sprinkled blood of Christ. It has a better word. That's not the word that the blood of Jesus at the cross, that's not the word that the blood of Jesus utters. Cain's blood cries from the ground. Christ's blood speaks for us in heaven. Cain's blood, uh, Abel's blood, Abel's blood cries for vengeance. Christ's blood cries for mercy on sinners. And the preacher says, now look, this is what you've come to. You've come to the blood of Jesus that, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As you think of it, consider the radical grace, the, the free grace of God found in Christ. And as you do, let it strengthen your soul. Today, when we take the Lord's Supper, let it satisfy your heart. You think of what God has done for you in Jesus, let it strengthen your resolve to, to stand. Let it, let it stir your affections. You had your affections stirred for God. Let, let it bring peace to your mind and ease your conscience. And set us up for the last point. I'll make this one and I'll be done. Consider what, consider what we avoid. It's 18 to 21. Consider what we receive, verses 22 through 24. And then here's a third thing. Consider your response. What do you do? What do you do? What is your response? I, I, think there, I think there are four ways to respond to this information. I think the first one is obedience. 
How do you respond to what God has done for you in Christ? I think the first response is obedience. You'll find it there in verse 25. And simply the preacher says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse God's call on your life. Don't refuse the conviction that you feel. For if they didn't escape, the people in the Old Testament, when they refused him who warned on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him? What kind of obedience am I talking about? If you're not, if you're not a Christian here today, if you're, you're here at church and you're not sure that you're a believer, obedience for you is not so much what you do. Obedience is you turning from your sinfulness and put your faith. The first step is faith in what Christ has done for you. If you are a Christian, what is your, how do you obey God? I would say you begin by confessing, confessing certain attitudes are sinful, or certain things are sinful, confessing and forsaking that sin. Obedience. There's another word, another way to respond. And I would say that is to, to trust, to trust. So the first word is obedience. The second word is trust. You find that in verse 26 and 27. Now, that phrase, uh, that's, the sentence is there. It's hard to follow. But what he's doing is saying there are things that are shaken and fall, and there's something that is unshakable, and God's kingdom is the unshakable kingdom. Let me read it to you, verse 26 and 27. <clears throat> At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken might remain. And that's the point. The point is to put your trust in the unshakable kingdom. Everything right now to me, it seems like, it feels like everything is in transition. It, it, it's hard to find anything that is actually stable. And, and isn't that the point though? Isn't that the point of what God shakes our world to remind us there is one unshakable kingdom? The kingdom of God? And so we obey and we trust. And what else? What else? Come down the page, verse 28. There's another word, and that word is worship. When we reflect on, when we reflect on what we don't get, what we avoid, and we reflect on what we receive, we want to worship Him. Do you see the worship there in verse 28? I'm going to read it to you. Therefore, let us be grateful. That's a good word. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. How do you describe acceptable worship? It is with a heart of, of gratitude. What can you be thankful for? I'll give you three, three S's. You ready? You can be thankful for salvation. That God in grace has saved you. That you have come to Christ. You are a child of God. You can't find anything else in the world to be thankful for. Be thankful that you are saved. Be thankful for sanctification. Sanctification is harder. Sanctification is God knocking off the rough edges and working with you. That you are our clay and he's the potter. He's molding you into what he wants you to be. Be thankful for salvation and, and thank, 
thankful for sanctification. I'll give you a third one. Be thankful for sovereignty. Learn to love the sovereignty of God, that God actually is in active control and going somewhere. So we live with this gratitude for salvation and sanctification and sovereignty. Acceptable worship in verse 28 is, is done with reverence. An understanding that we gather with God's people and it is a holy time. It's a time when we think on the deep things of the Lord and open His Word and sing unto God and utter prayers. Today we'll have the Lord's Supper. We pause and remember what Christ has done for us. We do so with reverence and awe. Awe in the fact that God in His infinite holiness and goodness would actually love people like me and you in Christ. And we see these things, we respond in, in obedience and trusting Him and worship. One last one. How do you respond? Verse 29. It's with humility. Humility. Verse 29 is humbling. It's what God does. He humbles us. We do not naturally humble ourselves. God humbles us. We are naturally prone to pride. God humbles us. Verse 29, no, notice what we're reminded of. Our God, our God is the God of Mount Sinai. Our God is a consuming fire. This God is a God of judgment. This is the same God that gave the law. But this is the God that loves His people in Christ and in an act of radical grace, Jesus lived perfectly, died on the cross in the place of sinners, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and offered this radical free grace. What do we do with this? We consider the radical grace of God. You consider what we avoid is condemnation. Consider what you receive and consider your response. Today as we close, I'm going to invite you to join me in just a moment of prayer with your heads bowed this morning. As we go to the Lord in a moment of prayer, I want to focus just on your response. In just a moment, we're going to sing and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. And I want to offer an opportunity to respond. For any of you that are Christians here today, and you sense that you, even though a child of God, have been living in some level of sin, you want to turn from that, you can do it while we're singing. You can just utter to the Lord a prayer of repentance and faith. Any of you here that are not Christians, you're not sure, you think you still may be lost in sin, when we sing, it's a good opportunity if you'd like to come forward. Our pastors are here. Part of our tradition is inviting people to respond. Or you can wait till after church and out in the lobby. Come and speak to one of us out in the lobby and just start the conversation. I'm not sure if I'm right before the Lord. We want to talk to you about what it means to give your life to Christ as you consider the radical grace of God found in Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for a chance together to gather together on a Sunday. 
Thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus. Would you keep our hearts focused on that goodness? Father, I pray you would strengthen your people, encourage the hearts of those that are discouraged. Call people to yourself. Save men and women from the wrath of God. Bring them to the love found in Christ. Hear our prayers. We ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing together?